0: In the late 90s, as a youth leader at a church in Michigan. She wanted to help her teenage students make good choices, live out pure Christian lives. And she just read a book that was all about the living example of Jesus. And friendship bracelets were a big thing at the time. So she had 300 of them printed up with four little letters on them. WWJD, What Would Jesus Do?, And this simple phrase was intended to remind her students of Christ's example, that it would guide them to make good choices throughout the week. these bracelets and the catchy phrase, though, caught on and spread like wildfire throughout the whole country. And so now it's just, it's part of our popular culture. Everybody has heard of WWJD, knows what it means, and it can still be useful. There are many occasions where Christians would do well to recall the moral example of Jesus and follow suit. Like Jesus wouldn't cheat on a test, right? He wouldn't use vulgar language or gossip or file a fraudulent insurance claim, and neither should you. But if not properly understood and used, there are definitely some pitfalls to this acronym. And there are many people who, they might ask the question, What would Jesus do? But they can't properly answer that question because they don't know Jesus. They don't know what Jesus was like, they don't know what he said, they don't know what he taught. How can you expect to know what Jesus would do if if you don't know what Jesus did do? It's presumptuous to think you can inherently know the, the will of God in Christ when you're totally ignorant of the revealed will of God in Christ in Scripture. And so in reality, a lot of people seem to abuse the question, what would Jesus do? Because they don't answer that question according to the Jesus of Scripture, but a Jesus of their own making they've refashioned Jesus into their own image and they have a Jesus who would certainly agree with them. He just happens to approve of whatever they want to do. And so effectively the question becomes, you know, what would I want Jesus to do? And the question, what would Jesus do? It's not a bad question, but the only way you can meaningfully answer that question is by knowing extremely well, you know, what Jesus did do, know what he taught, know what he said. If you know extremely well his, his person, his nature, his character. And there is a sense in which we should walk like Jesus. First John 2.6 says that the one who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. And so the question, what would Jesus do? It's not a bad question. It, it's just incomplete. It's insufficient on its own. You've got to answer other questions first. There's other questions that are more fundamental to how we live. Our Christian lives. So you should be asking first, like, who is Jesus? What did Jesus do? And now, who am I united to Christ by faith? These are foundational questions that scripture asks and answers. And it's questions like these that form the real biblical basis for Christian living. Because we do need guidance on how to live. We want to know how to walk in the way of the Lord. But you have to see how Christian living is deeply rooted in in Christ, in the person and the work of Christ. And that is something we are going to see today. It's presented in our passage for this morning at Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7. So you can turn there now, Colossians 2, 6 through 7. It's a very short passage today, but, but don't let that fool you. Because this is a very important passage in Colossians that these two verses form, you might say, the thesis or the main point of the letter of Colossians. And it sets up the rest of the letter. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the Colossian church and other churches nearby. And they were strangers to Paul personally, but he was a minister of the gospel. And so he had a burden for all the churches. And Paul had received a report about these churches from Epaphras who had visited Paul while he was in prison. Hey, good news. It was mostly a positive report that these Colossian Christians were were doing well. And so we learned last time back in verse 5 that Paul rejoiced. He says, To see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. These early Christians, they were largely standing firm in the faith. But there was some danger. And Epaphras reported to Paul that there's there's some trouble. This is from verse 4. He said, uh, "I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument." And Paul said that because there were people who were trying to delude them with persuasive arguments, and that more than the few in Colossae were, were not holding on to the, the apostolic teaching of Jesus. It's not that the false teachers in Colossae outright rejected Jesus. They didn't. He was an important figure to them and, and to their, their philosophy. But you see, they reshaped Jesus into another image, one of their own making, a Jesus who's not supreme, not sufficient, not divine, not Lord, not Savior. And people still do that today. They're still reshaping Jesus to their own liking. And they don't want the Jesus of Scripture, who is Lord and Savior, He's God and King, He's Creator and Judge. Because that Jesus probably wouldn't approve of their sin, probably wouldn't approve of their lifestyle choices, and so instead they, they form a, a Jesus who's like a spiritual guru. He only talks love. He never condemns, and so whenever they ask the question, you know, what would Jesus do? Well, they get an answer from that Jesus of approval. He would he would seemingly do what it, what they would want to do, and you know, furthermore, much like the Colossian false teachers. Such people typically want nothing more than to see genuine Christians fall. As Paul is going to say later in verse 8, there are still many who seek to take you captive through philosophy and empty deception. It's like a fierce storm. They, they slam against Christians, challenging their faith. And they're hoping to knock them over and to knock their Jesus over too. because They, they don't like the Christ of Scripture. The Colossians were resisting this clash of worldviews and this false teaching. Again, verse 5, they were stable in their faith in Christ. They were like trees that were weathering the storm. But, But Paul knows this is a long storm, and he wants to see them continue and to endure in the long run. He wants to see them carry on in the Christian walk in a steadfast manner where they're growing, they're bearing fruit. But Paul knows that's only going to happen long term, sustainably if their foundation is just rock solid, that they need to be just so firmly rooted and planted in Christ. If they're going to grow, if they're going to stay, if they're going to remain, that they need to grow in their foundation. I mean, how can trees survive a hurricane? No, because they have vast and deep roots. And likewise, Christians today still need to be deeply rooted in Christ. If you're going to remain steadfast in the faith, if you're going to grow, if you're going to bear fruit over the long haul, then you likewise need a rock solid foundation to your faith. And that foundation is Christ himself. Christ is the foundation for your whole Christian life. And this is really Paul's main message to the Colossians. In light of the forces that oppose them, and it's a message we too need to heed, and so let's read and see how Paul puts it. It won't take us long. It's just two verses. But let's read now Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. He says to them, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude look, I know it's a very short passage. At first glance, it might seem you know, unassuming, not that big of a deal. It's one of those passages you'd probably just glance over and keep moving. But again, don't be fooled by, by its brevity. This is actually, the, you might say, the main theme verse of Colossians. This is a summary of Paul's reason for writing. Colossians has a very long introduction. Technically, you know, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 5, is introduction. And in typical Pauline fashion, though, it's a theologically loaded introduction. And in the introduction alone, as we learn he gives a master class in the supremacy of Christ. But you see that, that wasn't just random. And that wasn't filler. That he was himself building up the foundation of their Christian lives by, by teaching them on Christ. But now though, from chapter 2, verse 8, through chapter 4, verse 7, six he's going to get into what you call the body of the letter the bulk of the letter the heart and it's largely about christian living the lord wants to see them grow and bear fruit and you know live out the christian life it's going to take up the bulk of the letter how to live like a christian but you see before you get to christian living you better have the right foundation for for everything Because if you don't have the right foundation for Christian living, it's just not going to work. And so Paul is being very strategic in teaching them about Christ before telling them to to walk like Christ. You have to know Jesus. You have to be built up on on Jesus. And that's because the Christian life must be founded on Christ. Christianity is not just a way of life. It's not just a, a list of rules. It's rather all about following Christ. It's a life that's lived out of a vital union with Christ himself. And so if you get that wrong, if you miss that, you're getting the foundation wrong. And that means, well, you're going to get everything else in Colossians wrong. You're going to get everything else in Christianity wrong. You're going to miss like the whole point of Christian living. And so notice again, verse six, he says, therefore, as as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in. In him. Now, you probably didn't notice this, but this is actually the first imperative or command in the whole book of Colossians. We've already covered, like, it feels like a lot of ground, but this is the first time Paul is actually telling them to do something directly. And so, what does he tell them to do? The command is to walk. Walk in Christ. And this prepares us for what's coming in the rest of the letter. And walk as you know, it's a very common metaphor for living. But Christianity is not just a walk. It's not just a way of life. Again, it's primarily about being united to Christ by faith. And that forms the foundation for, for why we, we do the things we do. Why we live the way we live. So, you see, the command is not just walk. What's the command? Walk in him, walk in Christ. And there's a world of difference between just walking and walking in Christ. And if you don't get that, you're missing the whole point of Christian living. And like I said, you're going to miss the rest of the letter. It's like, don't go any further. What's the point? It's like if you're building a skyscraper and you have a cracked and compromised foundation, it's not doing you any good to just keep adding floors. That's not meaningful growth probably just topple over. It's a recipe for disaster. And, and likewise, if you're, if you're here and you've gotten the foundation of Christian living wrong, you don't know what it means to walk in Christ. You're not going to grow meaningfully. You're not going to be stable in the faith. And you just might fall over. So like verses six and seven here, they're like a hinge transitioning from what's come to the rest of the letter. And they're getting us ready for everything to come. And Let's make sure you're ready. Let's make sure you can be built up in Christian living, which does matter, but because you have the right foundation. And so today, no no catchy outline. I just want to camp out on this concept of walking in Christ to make sure that you're building your, your Christian living, that the things you do as a Christian, that you're building it on Christ. I'm going to bet that some of you here, you know, if pressed, you, you, don't, you don't really know what it means to walk in Christ. It, it doesn't quite click. It doesn't fully make sense. But let's see if we can help with that because this, this is essential Christianity. So let, let's just explore this. It's to stir your thinking. You know, here's a question. How are we supposed to live out our Christian lives? What, what should motivate us? What should drive us? What should be the foundation for our Christian living? And I'll give you some wrong answers. Fear, guilt, tradition, family. If you do Christian things like read your Bible, go to church, or if you abide by Christian morals like, you know, abstain from sexual immorality or, or not covet, but you do these things out of fear or guilt or tradition or family, you have it all wrong. And to be sure, this is why some people live as Christians. They do Christian things. Uh, they have a guilty conscience over their sin. And they fear God's judgment. And they think that, you know, if I wear this WWJD bracelet and I, just, I try harder to live like Jesus, it'll alleviate my guilty conscience and, you know, maybe get me on God's good side. And others, you know, they look like Christians on the outside, but it's really just because of their strong family ties and tradition. They come from a, a long line of Christians. They were raised in the faith. It's all they know. And so they're just, you know, carrying on a a well-worn traditional way of life. But again, according to scripture, these are terrible reasons to live the Christian life. And they're not only the wrong reasons, but they're going to make Christian living miserable. If your foundation for Christian living isn't just genuine faith in the Lord Jesus, the Christian life is going to be a miserable burden for you. And you're going to view Christianity as just it's a bunch of rules that you don't really want to follow, but you feel like you have to follow. I mean, you've got this standard that you're supposed to abide by. Like, you know, what would Jesus do? But if you're being honest, you don't really want to do what Jesus would do. You, you want to do what you want to do. And so you live in constant friction with the Christian standard. Sometimes you might do the right thing, but not really from a happy heart. Most of the times, though, you, you fall short. You don't measure up. And so you vacillate between guilt and frustration. You can't keep up. You can't keep this standard. You can't be a good enough Christian and so discouragement and dejection follow. And you just might fall away. This is a very misguided view of Christian living. But nevertheless, this is how many ap- approach the faith or, or see the faith. And if this is you, I've got some bad news, although you might take it as good news, that you have it all wrong. You've completely missed and misunderstood the Christian faith and Christian living. The whole foundation of your Christian life is compromised. There's some good news, though. There's a better way. Now, like, we're supposed to be happy to be Christians. There is a better way here, and you need the right foundation, which is Christ himself. Like I said, Christ needs to be the foundation. Now, that needs its own explaining, though. So, let's keep going as we think about, you know, walking in Christ. What does that mean? It starts with our problem. Our problem is that in our fallen natures, we don't want to walk in God's ways. We don't want to do what Jesus would do. Because in our very hearts or natures before salvation, we're corrupt. Our desires are corrupt We're born enslaved to sin. We hate God. We hate the light. We love the darkness by nature. Last thing we want to do is follow Jesus down his narrow path. And furthermore, God's standard is impossible anyway. I mean, God gives his law, his definition of right and wrong, but, but you know, who can keep that? He demands perfection. He, he demands complete obedience, but who can perfectly live out the Christian life? No one. This is a big problem, though, and it makes walking or trying to walk in God's ways an unbearable burden. I mean, I guess if, if guilt or tradition are strong enough, it might keep you going. But talk about a miserable existence. And this is why some become embittered against God or Christianity, and then they walk away. But God knows our problem. He knows our sinful condition. He sees our hearts. He knows that on the inside, we don't love him. We don't worship him. We don't want to walk in his ways because of the fall and our sin natures. His ways are good though. And and he's delighted to see his children live in righteousness, but we can't do that on our own. We're, We're bound to sin. We're bound to unrighteousness this is why God decided to do something about that on our behalf. This is why he in love sent Jesus. And who is Jesus? And from Colossians, what have you already learned from chapter one? He's, he's the preeminent one. he's the pre-existent one. He's in fact, the creator and sustainer of all things. But that same one, God, the son, he, he took on a human nature where the fullness of deity came to dwell in in full humanity and to live on earth among us. Why would he do that? Ultimately, to die. His mission was to be a sin bearer. He came to be a substitute sacrifice for sinners, for for us. Because we were a people who we could not obey God. We, We can't please God. We cannot live by his laws. All all we do is break his laws. You can add more law. That just means more things to break, more rules to violate. This means more condemnation. We're lost. We're enslaved. We're sinners by nature. We're we're dead. We're corrupt. But you see on the cross, Jesus dealt with all of our, our guilt and our shame and our sin problem. He was on the cross standing under the father's wrath, paying the full penalty for us. When you sin, when you do wrong, when you fail to live up to God's standard, you feel guilt and shame and you feel that separation from God. And you know, that's on purpose. That's, that's by design. You're supposed to feel bad when you sin. But you can't alleviate that guilt by just, you know, trying harder to keep some other rules or doing deeds of penance. And the only way you can deal with your guilt and, and your sin is, is through Christ. Like Isaiah said, or God said through Isaiah, you know, your sins are as scarlet. You can't clean them. But they can be white as snow. They will be white as snow. And, and that promise is fulfilled in Christ. He's, he's the only one who can actually forgive us all of that guilt and cleanse us. Just 100% cleanse us of our condition. That Jesus came to forgive a people. That's not all he came to do, though. That even on top of that, he also came to renew a people, to remake a people. And you use Ezekiel now, we were like a valley of dry bones. That there is no spiritual life within us. And it's one thing to forgive people, but if they're still dead on the inside, if they're still spiritually dead and, and they don't love God and, and they love the darkness, they're still not going to change. They're not going to walk in God's ways. But as Jesus rose from the dead, he was going to lead a people in a new resurrection life. He would raise these dry bones to life. And so here we're talking regeneration or new birth. That Jesus came to impart new spiritual life to his people. He was going to give them not just forgiveness. I mean, that's obviously huge, but he's also going to give them new hearts. The new nature And new desires. He came to transform a people such that afterward that they would naturally love the things that God loves. And hate the things that God hates. That God's ways to them would become a delight. Talk about a game changer. You know, by nature, before salvation. You look at God's standard of of right and wrong. You see many things that you don't want to do. There's opposition. You don't like that. You want to go your own way. And so if if you're forced to live by that standard, it's a burden. But what if you were given a new nature on the inside, where when you looked at God's standard of righteousness, you see like, that's a good life. I want that. That, That's good. And then walking in God's ways would be, be a blessing. It'd be joy. It'd be easy. It'd be a natural thing to do. And see, this is the transformation that takes place when you come to faith in Christ. This is what happens when you are united to Christ by faith. And this is why we speak of, you know, our union with Christ as the right foundation for Christian living. Not guilt, not fear, not family, not tradition, but union with Christ and faith in Christ. That's the foundation. You know, apart from the forgiveness of sins and the new birth, Christian living makes no sense. It's just another religion with another set of rules. You don't really want to follow and you can't follow. But when you submit to Jesus as your Lord and your savior, he he transforms you. And so now you you see the standard of Christian living. You see something good, something appealing. You see the path of righteousness and you know that that's a blessed path. That's not a burden. That's, That's for my good. And furthermore, now that you've been completely forgiven, By his work on the cross you you want to give thanks you're driven to worship this jesus for for all he did for you and then you come to realize that walking in his ways is how you worship him and so you become well happy to offer up your whole life as a living sacrifice to him not not to pay him back but just to praise his name to magnify his name You know, I know we're running with this, but this is what's behind this this central and essential command to walk in Christ. This is what it looks like to, to live the Christian life, to do Christian things, but from a foundation of faith. And if you don't have this foundation of faith and you try and live the Christian life according to your own power, you're going to be so frustrated and discouraged but it's only when you bow to Him in faith does subsequent Christian living become a joy. And that's when it becomes actual worship, where you now can really worship the Lord by your obedience. Maybe for some of you today, it's time to change. Maybe some of you need to relay the, the whole foundation to your faith. And if you view Christian living as drudgery, as a drag, something that's holding you back, this is why. Have you truly been born again by faith in Christ? Have you really been united to him? Have you received Christ Jesus as your Lord? And speaking of, go back to verse 6. You see how Paul only reinforces the fact that Christian living must be founded on Christ, especially receiving Christ as Lord. So look at the beginning of the verse again. He says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. And so do you see what has to happen first? You have to receive Jesus as Lord. And if you've not truly received Jesus as Lord, but you're trying to walk the Christian walk anyway, it's not going to work. If you're still living like you're the Lord, you're the master of your own domain. You're only going to come into conflict with the will of Of the true Lord, Jesus. And so this too is essential. Receiving Christ Jesus as Lord. But now, of course, we need to clarify what what that really means. And it's probably not what you think. So again, there's no outline. I hope you're just hanging with me. We're just trying to really explore this concept. What it means to walk in Christ. And everything that goes with it. And so now let's ask, what does it mean to receive Christ? Christ Jesus as Lord, that you might walk in Him. If you were to ask most people that question today, they'd probably answer that it means to you know accept Jesus into your heart. But you know the Bible never uses that phrase or that terminology, and it's really a very nebulous thing to say. Like, what does that really mean? And instead, receive here to receive Jesus as Lord. It's actually a technical term. It's carried over from Judaism. And it means to, it speaks of the transmission of teaching from one person or generation to the next. And so to receive Jesus as Lord means that you are accepting not just Jesus into your heart, but you're accepting all of the apostolic teaching and tradition on Jesus into your heart. It means you're believing in everything that's said of Jesus in scripture. I mean, these two go together. How do we know about Jesus, his person, his work, his significance? In God's design, Christ has been fully revealed by the writings of his apostles. Right? Jesus himself didn't even write anything. But God used the writings of his apostles. There's a sacred tradition that's been handed down, the scriptures, and they tell us of him. So this means you cannot accept Jesus If you do not accept the scriptures, which speak of Jesus. And this leads to a problem though, because many people would say they've accepted Jesus into their heart, but they have most, most definitely not accepted everything the Bible says about Jesus into their heart. They have not received all the inspired apostolic teaching of Jesus, which means that they've not really received Jesus as Lord. What Jesus have they received? Who knows? It's not maybe one of their own making, one of someone else's making. But unless you receive the Jesus of Scripture as depicted and defined and described in Scripture, you don't know him. And that in turn means the whole foundation of your faith, again, it is compromised. How can you build a meaningful Christian life on receiving a different Jesus? You can't. This is kind of the background of Colossians that Paul feared these false teachers would delude them and draw them away to a different Jesus, and that would be the, the end of their foundation. And thankfully though, the Colossians had gotten this right, that Epaphras he preached the full gospel to them, that he handed down to these Colossians everything the apostles taught about Christ: his death, his burial, his resurrection, his person, his work, his significance. And the Colossians, they received it all. They they accepted it all. You can't pick and choose, but they received everything. And chiefly, though, receiving the true Jesus can be summarized as receiving Jesus as Lord. You see that? Just receiving the true Jesus can be summarized by receiving Jesus as Lord. And this is why the apostles overwhelmingly preached Jesus as Lord, the Lordship of Christ. And just take the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts, for example, you know, which kind of like highlights the early church and how it began. And did you know that the apostles preached Jesus as Savior just two times in the book of Acts? Now, he is Savior. That's a big deal, of course, but just mention it twice. They preached Jesus as Lord. They mention his Lordship over 100 times in the book of Acts and their teaching and their preaching. In fact, Jesus as Lord became the identifying and saving confession of the early church. Right, Romans ten nine: If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. Second Corinthians four five: We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. Or Philippians two eleven: That every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so do you see Jesus as Lord became the confession that signified that one had really received or accepted Christ and, and the apostolic teaching of Christ. Why is that why did Jesus as Lord become the main confession of the early church? Well, for one it captured the essence of Christ's identity That he was truly a man who lived on earth. Like everyone saw him. And he was crucified by the Romans. People saw that too. And that's true. It's essential. But but he was also more than that. That he was God incarnate. He was Emmanuel. God with us. He was the divine savior. And Paul especially uses the term Lord. And he he makes it a a term for the deity of Christ. And as again we learned back in Colossians 1. This Jesus He's actually that the pre-existent, preeminent, sovereign, creator, and ruler of the whole universe. So when you're confessing him as Lord, you're you're confessing his true identity as the Son of God and God the Son. And furthermore, confessing Jesus as Lord serves to put us in a right relationship with him. He's Lord. You know what that means? He's he's not just your teacher. He's not your, your buddy. He's not your guru. He's your Lord, your master, your sovereign, your ruler. That also means you're not the Lord. It means even Caesar's not the Lord. That Christ Jesus is Lord. He's the crucified Lord. He's the risen Lord. He's the Lord of Lords. And that means he has absolute authority over your lives. And that we should follow him. And so when you're confessing that guy, that that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, he is the Lord, you're confessing His complete supremacy. And that's part of the very definition of saving faith. And it's only that recognition that can form the foundation for Christian living. So let's bring this back to our discussion of, you know, walking in Christ. Verse six, just as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. In other words, you have to walk in light of his identity. You have to live in light of his lordship. And being the ruler of all things, that one, that guy, he's got the right to tell us what to do. He has the authority to direct our steps. We need to obey him just, just by right. It's the creator-creation distinction. Like, we, we just should obey him. But it goes beyond that because he, he's our Lord. And he's good. This is the Lord who, who died for us and rose to, to redeem us, to forgive us, to remake us. And this Lord, He's a good shepherd. He's just trying to lead us to green pastures. And so we then should become happy to willingly follow this Lord and do what he says. Because, well, he's good. He's he's our Savior. He's taking us to green pastures. And we will follow. You see, it's only by embracing Christ's lordship over your life that will really make Christian living something you, you want to do. Something that you, you naturally, because of new birth, you want to do. It'll become your delight. That's how it's meant to work. And here's a, an example of this, kind of in action. You know, later in Colossians, Paul's going to give what some might call hard commands. You have that, the household code where Paul delineates God's will for roles, husbands, wives, parents, children. And this may run counter to our culture, but who calls the shots? The Lord. All right. So, so what is the Lord's will? Well, take the command for wives. Just look at Colossians 3.18, what's coming up. It says, wives, be subject to your husbands. It's like, are you kidding me? Now, how backward is that? Now, how, how chauvinistic. Wives can't really be expected to do this today, right? But look, this is the Lord's design and will for humanity and the family. Husband and wife are equal in value before the Lord, but, but no union can have two heads. And so God has simply chosen to give men the, the role of head or leader in the home, to, they have the authority to lead with love. And he's called wives to, to come under that leadership and support that the whole family can thrive together as one. But still, this is a big pill for some wives to swallow. I mean, How can they live according to this standard? This is part of Christian living. Well, it starts by recalling the lordship of Christ. Well, okay, he's Lord. He's sovereign. He's ruler. This is, this is his design. This is his will. And I know his ways are good. I know where he's trying to lead me. And so we need to joyfully embrace his will. It's just the will of the Lord. In fact, Paul encourages wives along this line. Look at the whole verse of 318. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This is not something you can do outside the Lord. It doesn't work outside the Lord. This only works in the Lord. Hey, same goes for children. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And why should they obey? That's well, what the Lord wants them to do. It's well-pleasing to him. And you know, even slaves are reminded down in verse 24, he says, it is the Lord Jesus whom you serve. See, at the end of the day, we all ultimately just serve Jesus. He's our Lord. We've confessed him as Lord. And that means he rules our lives now. But you do that in faith because you realize that's a, that's a good thing. I, I want to do that. Now, I've tried my own way. I used to live under my lordship where I was sitting on the throne and and calling the shots and look, some good that did me, right? It only results in multiplied sin and guilt and condemnation, broken relationships, ruin, hardship, strife. Like our way is not working out, but that's why the Lord came to rescue us at great cost, sacrificing himself to to forgive us for going our own ways, to bring us back to his way, which is good. So, you know, I'm going to go his way now. Enough of my own way. I'm going to willingly follow the way of the Lord. This is Christian living. It's how it works. How it's supposed to work. And the only way it works is when you come under willingly and and joyfully the lordship of Christ by faith. And this also explains why for some so-called Christians, it it doesn't work. And Christian living doesn't work because they've not truly received Christ as their Lord. I mean, talk is cheap. You look at their lives. They're still living like, like they're the Lord. They've not totally surrendered their will to the Lord's. And so they have nothing but but friction with his commands. So they're constantly fighting back against his ways. And such people, they might, they might act like Christians, but they're never going to get Christian living right. They're never going to meaningfully grow. They won't be pleasing the Lord in their obedience. And most likely they'll just be exasperated. That's hard to keep up. You know, as a final thought here though, some of you, you're hearing all this and I hope you're tracking, but you might be thinking to yourself though, but you know what? I I do believe in Jesus. I have faith in him. I've received him in Lord. I I believe I've accepted all that scripture says about him. I follow, I want to follow, but why then does Christian living sometimes still feel hard? And so why don't I always have like total joy? And walking his way. Why, if I'm being honest, are there some parts of Christian living that I you know, actually don't want to do? These are good and genuine questions. They reflect a common experience. And there is an answer. And the answer is that as you come to new life in Christ, you really are made new, but that new life within you starts small, like, like a sapling, that you do have new desires. You should. You want to follow the Lord. There's part of you now that, yeah, you're all in. You want to follow the Lord. But you see that newness, those new desires, the new part of you, it needs to grow. You've got to cultivate the new self and feed it. You have to send down roots, build branches. You've got to enlarge that foundation on Christ. Only then will will the new desires that spring from your new self overpower and outweigh the old desires of the flesh, which still remain. And those don't go away. But that's when Christian living will become natural. As so you walk by the spirit, you're founded on Christ and you're built up in his ways. And this is where Paul was at with the Colossians. These were young Christians. They had begun well. They were truly born again. They had truly received Christ Jesus as Lord, but now they need to walk in him. They need to expand Upon their foundation in him. And this is what Paul gets at in the connected thought of verse 7. We'll just do this quickly. But he tells them to walk in him. Verse 7. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him. And established in your faith. Just as you were instructed. And overflowing with gratitude. And do you struggle to follow Jesus and live as you should all the time. Yeah, you do. I do. We all do because we're still sinners and we retain the flesh, but that's why you need to grow. You have been established in Christ, but that foundation had better expand if you're going to grow up. Imagine you buy a plant from the nursery, but you forget it comes in that little quart container or whatever, but you forget to transplant it into your garden. And so that plant will be limited in growth because its roots are limited in growth. Its roots can't really grow that much. And so the plant is really not going to grow that much. If it's going to mature and bear full fruit, you're going to have to transplant it into rich, full soil. And then its roots, they'll spread out, they'll go deep. And then and only then will the plant grow up, mature, and bear fruit. And so it goes for Christians. That in salvation, we're made alive and we are transplanted into the rich soil of Christ. But now that there's a way we participate, our, our roots need to grow. You know, Paul uses a, a perfect participle in verse 7 for being firmly rooted. That just means it's a past action with ongoing results. That you really were rooted in Christ when you first believed. You're in Christ. But you are meant to continually send down new roots. You've got to stretch out. You've got to grow deeper in your knowledge of the Lord. Because only then will you be progressively built up and established in your faith. Verse 7, those are present participles that, that shows just ongoing actions. That's when you'll, you'll keep adding branches. Fruit will appear as you deepen in Christ. And then you'll become eventually like an established tree. One that's proven. It's reliable. It's it's verified. It's trustworthy. And that will come with the assurance of your hope. And finally, all this growth will then result in, he says, gratitude. Overflowing gratitude. As you're built up on the foundation of Christ, you're eventually just going to produce a bumper crop of thanksgiving. You know, with eyes fixed on Christ and on who he is what he's already done for us, who we are now in him. You won't grumble or complain when trials come, but you will truly give thanks in all things. I mean, you have the Lord now. You know the Lord. He's saved you. He's now your Lord. How can you not forever give thanks for that no matter what happens in this life? And such thankfulness, by the way, really is the chief antidote to false teaching. It's really probably why this is such a big theme in Colossians. Thanksgiving gratitude is a big, you know, kind of sub theme in Colossians. As Paul is going to go on to say, he said in verse four, he's going to say it again in verse eight. There are false teachers and they're trying to delude these Christians and, and pull them away from the true Christ. But if they can be so overflowing with gratitude, you know These false teachers won't find any foothold to sow discontentment, to sow doubt, and they'll be secure. And conditions haven't changed much. We're not, the, we're not the Colossians, but these are timeless universal truths on Christian living. And there are still countless out there who seek to delude us and draw us away from Christ. But that won't happen if you're overflowing with gratitude. And you will overflow with gratitude if you are being continually built up in Christ. And you will be continually built up in Christ if you're ever deepening your roots in Christ. Expanding your foundation. This is how that the Christian life is meant to work and play out. We must never lose sight of the foundation for how we live and why we live. which is just Christ himself. And, you know, as your foundation grows deeper and stronger, you're going to find that, you know, you don't really need a little bracelet to prompt you with what Jesus would do. But instead, when your eyes are just constantly fixed on, on who Jesus is, what he's already done on my behalf, and who I am now united to him, and that by the Spirit, you're going to walk as Jesus walked, willingly and joyfully and worshipfully and so let us walk like that let's pray